0: What is going on around us is not separate from us. This is not a spectator sport. It's not like we're sort of in the stands and watching the game and saying, who's gonna win, are the good guys or the bad guys. Actually, we are playing this sport along with everyone else. It's not a game. This is real life and we're all part of it. So the future is what each of us is actually co-creating with every decision, every choice, every word, every act that we take. And once we realize that, it gives us both the sense of awesome responsibility because we realize it actually matters on the smallest level. You know, it matters if I throw away this piece of plastic into the garbage because it'll actually end up in the ocean. It matters what job I do or just from the biggest to the smallest decisions. It matters how I speak to others. But also we realize that there's this power that comes from that because we realize that by all of us acting together we can actually change the direction of that future. It's not preordained. It's not something that somebody else will decide. And that's where I get so excited by XR.
1: Welcome to the Extinction Rebellion podcast.
2: This episode, Choosing a New Paradigm with Jeremy Lent.
1: We have betrayed! We are here
0: to demonstrate that we can. We are here to overthrow an earth destroying system and replace it with one in harmony with the earth system.
2: In harmony with the living world. In harmony with the needs of all humanity now and in the future. That was George Mombio speaking at the October Rebellion last year, and it was recorded by my co-presenter today, who is Phil Smith. Hi, Phil. Hello,
1: Jessica. Hello, everyone. Yeah, that was um, on Whitehall on the first day of the October Rebellion, sort of crouched by the, I think it was Women in War m- Memorial, and the huge crowd, and um, yeah, Mombio doing his stuff into a megaphone, obviously. <laughs>
2: And the reason that we picked that clip was because the interviewee that we're featuring in this week's podcast uh, is a favourite thinker of George Monbiot.
1: Yeah, Jeremy Lent, who is the author of The Patterning Instinct, and he also told us he's got a new book on its way called The Web of Meaning. He describes himself as an author and integrator, the integrating being bringing together, say, Eastern philosophy with more Western ideas, bringing together like science and a more spiritual way of seeing the world, all to kind of show its its oneness.
2: Yes, and the book's really impressive in that it covers so much. It was quite hard to focus down in the podcast. You, you had
1: to read the huge book and I'm doing the <laughs> editing, so I, I think you did more work. Uh, <laughs> but I really like being there for the conversation you guys had. I really like what he offers in terms of showing how The language we use and the kind of deep stories that are under our civilization say or under in our ways of thinking in our ways of interacting how those aren't like fixed things that we create our reality through them and so that they can change and they have changed over history
2: it feels to me and it feels to quite a lot of people sort of in the climate movement at the moment that there's something stopping us progressing And it isn't necessarily just the fossil fuel companies. It seems to be something either in our software or in our hardwiring. And I think your book, The Patterning Instinct, addresses some of this. Do do you recognize
0: that? Um, Oh, I do. Absolutely. There's something much deeper that's stopping the transformation we need. And in fact, to take your metaphor of software or hardware, I call it the operating system the underlying foundational qualities of all the ways we make sense of the world that I think we have to identify has got something wrong and needs to be changed for us to go where we need to go.
2: You've written this very fascinating book, The Patterning Instinct, and uh, there's so much in in it. Would you mind telling me what is the Patterning Instinct?
0: Oh, sure. Um, We humans have this instinct to patent meaning into all the different stuff, otherwise sort of chaotic random stuff that goes on around us to try to make sense of it. Even a little infant has this instinct to make sense of things. So when a, a babe is born, nobody tells her, you need to figure out how to learn language. She uses that patterning instinct to kind of take all the sounds and feelings she receives, everything else. And over the months, she, she patterns language into that. And as we grow up and become uh, sort of kids and then adolescents and then grown-ups, we use that patterning instinct to always keep patterning meaning into the cosmos and try to make meaning out of it. So as humans, we're like meaning-making creatures, and we're driven to do that because we have this patterning instinct.
2: And in your book, you look at the kind of patterns that different civilizations have used to make sense of the world, and also how that has affected our relationship with nature and with the planet.
0: I think what's interesting is to realize that that same instinct I just described that each of us has as individuals works on a community and culture-wide basis. So if you think back to the earliest days when humans first evolved language and tried to make sense of the world, they'd look at things like the stars and just everything in nature around them and they need to use that same instinct to try to make meaning out of the cosmos and so every culture every sort of big cultural complex begins to make sense out of the universe by sort of a core metaphor if you will to understand how nature works you know, humans spend most of our history as nomadic hunter-gatherers, 95% or more of our history. And as nomadic hunter-gatherers, the sense they made of nature was really like a giving parent. They sort of saw nature as being really their sort of mother and father and all the different elements in nature, the trees and the animals and the mountains and everything, were all basically spirits that were relatives. So it was like nature was one big family. And from these core metaphors, cultures then begin to develop their values. And what I discovered as I went through the history of the different ways in which cultures made meaning is that the, a culture creates those set of values and those values are what actually shape history.
2: And after we were hunter-gatherers, we then took up agriculture. And in your book, you describe the shift in values and in metaphors there.
0: Yes, so once humans settle down in agriculture new places of separation and hierarchy began to develop. They'd sort of separate their cultivated land from the wild. And then as some people got to be more successful than others in growing the crops, hierarchies developed. And fences would be set up between people who owned more fields and people who owned less. And then hierarchies led to specializations. And then sort of chieftains arise. And we went from an egalitarian uh, history as nomadic hunter-gatherers to a much more hierarchical way of living so naturally people began to make sense of the whole of nature in that same hierarchical way so from seeing nature as just a giving mother and father they saw nature basically as a hierarchy of the gods and they felt that just like They'd have to sort of kowtow to the local chieftain, sort of flatter him to try to make sure he treated you well. They figured they had to do the same thing with the gods. Suddenly, you have priesthoods and sacrifice and rituals and all this stuff to try to propitiate the gods to make sure they didn't bring down famine or floods or whatever on your fields. And so, sense of anxiety and sense of having to sort of keep the hierarchical powers happy began to develop in the human experience. And that was true every agrarian society around the world, whether it was in Massive America or China or the Middle East or wherever it was.
2: Um, But humans were still sort of lower than the gods. They were vulnerable to being acted upon within this kind of uh, paradigm, this cluster of metaphors that you're talking about there, yes?
0: Yes, they were definitely... Lower than the gods, but then some of these agrarian societies developed such powerful hierarchies that there was this real belief that the pharaoh or the emperor or whoever it might be was actually divine, so there was this sense that there wasn 't this clear divide that humans are down here, and the g- there was almost like a little bit of a gradation with the highest human being kind of like one step in the divinity already, and along with that of course came the patriarchy. So even within any human society, no matter how low a male was compared to the fief holder or whoever was above him, within his particular family, he was higher than the female in the family. And there was this really strong sense of um, this gender divide that's been with us ever since now for 10,000 years or so. It was Plato who did the best job of putting all these ideas together and he's the one who first created this divide between two dimensions of the universe. There was the eternal dimension which was the source of ideas and ultimate goodness where everything was perfect and stayed unchanging. And then there was the material world, which he saw as polluted and always changeable. And it was like the best the material world could ever be. It was like a pale imitation of the ideal world up above. And he made this dualistic split, not just in the cosmos, but in the human being. So he actually started coming up with this idea that the human being herself or himself was divided between a soul that connected us with that divinity, that eternal divinity, and the body, which once again was polluted and material and subject to all kinds of untrustworthy ideas and, and feelings. it's, it's uh, nice of
2: you to say that that's a woman, but actually I know very much in ancient Greek it really wasn't.
0: <laughs> right, that's a good point. Now, he, he wouldn't even, I mean, to him, women weren't even, no. don't even think about that. It was only, uh, it's man and the male and him, and he actually saw the soul as being like imprisoned in the body. This theme of the body being like this tomb. So when you died, your soul was freed to go back to this kind of eternal uh, place of perfection. So Christianity basically, when it emerged, it took some of its ideas obviously from the Old Testament and the Hebrew idea of God. But above all, its cosmology came from the ancient Greeks. Um, and it was, they sort of took Plato's idea of this perfect dimension and they called it heaven. Plato had this idea of the ultimate craftsman who created everything, and that became God. And the soul-body divide was this perfect uh, sort of interpretation in Christianity that if you did <clears throat> good um, in your life, your soul went up to heaven, and if you didn't, then you know, too bad for you. The idea of hell came a little bit later, but that obviously terrified gazillions of people from then on. So basically the way in which even after the scientific revolution, even today, we still tend to think in this dualistic way, the split between reason and emotion, or the split between spiritual ideas and material ideas. And so much of that thinking really started with the ancient Greeks. Because if you take that logic that the ancient Greeks had, the Christianity then developed, and you say that actually the sort of human ability to reason is what connects us with divinity, and there's a split between our feelings and our emotions and our bodies and that connection with divinity and then you apply that to other animals then logic would state that well then other animals who don't have reason don't have links to divinity. And that's exactly what happened with Christianity and then with Descartes, who really sort of transformed Christian ideas, translated them to the more scientific worldview, but the same dualistic splits. That's the world which we've inherited. So while hunter-gatherers and even early agrarian societies saw spirits in all the world around, there was no sense that the land lacked divinity, from monotheism onwards, The rest of the natural world has been desacralized. There's a sense that the only source of sacredness or holiness or meaning comes from this kind of God, this higher dimension. And the natural world is just this kind of stage, really, in which the great human drama plays out and this sort of drama of the soul, wanting to get back to heaven, or since the scientific revolution, it's been the drama of using our reason and science to conquer nature. But nature itself has become nothing more than a machine, a resource to be utilized. And similarly, as human beings, we're still very much stuck in this metaphor, seeing our bodies as a machine. And even, you know, when we use metaphors to talk about our minds. We'll take this modern computer metaphor and talk about our sort of mind as software and the brain as hardware or whatever, not realizing that what we're doing is taking these implicit splits between the the sort of soul and the body from uh, pre-scientific times and applying them in our own sense-making. And that split with the natural world has been one of the major drivers of these imbalances that we're looking at right now.
2: It's it's funny that kind of difference that you talk about between sort of reason and the heart because ever since I'd been a child, when you hear about factory farming or I just have a feeling that it's wrong. But it's so normal in our society that you just sort of skip over those feelings. But I remember seeing machines for mass chicken farming which just sort of sucks them in and murders them. It's, it's a, a machine for for doing that and the horrifying kind of pictures of cows isolated and it feels like the part of me that is connected to the planet, so however tentatively and connected to nature, just sort of um, reacts when when I see things like that but it's become kind of normalised.
0: Once we can recognize that there are different ways to pattern meaning into the universe, it kind of frees us up to start to look at our own patterns of meaning. So it's a little bit like a fish swimming in water that doesn't even know it's in water. But if you can actually get the fish to understand it's in water, and it opens up this freedom to be able, for us to be able to say, well, can I actually look at different ways of making meaning that might exist? And that's where I think there's so much value in looking at the traditional Chinese way of understanding things. It's not just this theoretical exercise of, oh, that's an interesting historical vignette, but it's more that we can learn from the different ways in which they structured meaning and apply that to our own world. And one more caveat before I go into it is There's a lot I think is incredibly valuable from that, but I don't want to give the impression that I view, say, traditional China as having been some sort of golden age, and if only we could go back to that way of thinking, then somehow um, things would be better. Because really one of the things we discover as we look at history, there was no golden age. Hunter-gatherers, there were a lot, lot of good things, the way they made sense of the universe. There were also a lot of bad things in that I way I really of
2: appreciated that about your book, that it, it gave a right. context of that because it is possible to mythologize other cultures yes. and not to see that there was any sort of dark side but hunters and gatherers, they made species in- extinct inadvertently. That's right, and, yes. Uh, yes.
0: Yeah, and they, they, for the most part, they carried out infanticide, you know If an infant was born, there was not much food around. They did kill the the little baby so they could keep moving. So, I mean, it wasn't all great, you know? And similarly, the Chinese, um, incredibly patriarchal. um, There were a lot of really very difficult things about their culture all through history. So I don't want to mythologize them either. But having said that, when we look at the ways in which they made sense of the universe, there's a lot we can learn because they didn't have this dualistic divide.
2: Yet they have yin and yang as an idea. So why is that different?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, you know. And for people who aren't quite sure about that, then what yin and yang refers to is really a way of understanding all the different elements of the natural world in terms of what they call the polarity, where yin tends to represent a darker or wet or oftentimes the lower quality of something. It also is associated a lot with feminine qualities. And yang represents oftentimes like the brighter or drier or upper or more powerful qualities. So in that sense, there's a kind of a divide between these two ways of looking at things in the universe. But the important thing to understand is the difference between a polarity, which is like yin and yang, and a dualistic divide. So the simple way to understand polarity is, if we think of the Earth, we have the North Pole and the South Pole, we don't say, like, the North Pole is better than the South Pole. We say the North is the North, and South, and the North needs the South. You can't have a North without a South. The yin-yang symbol is great, because some people may know it. It's like this kind of semicircle, almost looks a little bit like a fetus, one black and one white. But within each of those is a little dot. In the white is a little black dot, and in the black is a little white dot. Because the idea is that always the yin contains the seed of the yang, and the yang contains the seed of the yin. So you could almost like think of waves, like when a wave is at its crest, it's about to start falling. Or when the moon is full, it's about to start to diminish. So there's a sense that everything goes up and goes down. And that's how the Chinese basically understood the whole universe.
2: The duality you were talking about sounds fixed state and the polarity sounds like a process. Uh, or, or yes. something
0: fluid. Th- that gives a sense of the way the Chinese saw the cosmos. They saw it as being this deeply interconnected, unfolding process as opposed to being this kind of dualistic place where there was a good dimension of the heavens and the bad, polluted world, they basically saw everything as being connected with everything else. They saw the heavens and humans and the rest of the earth as being almost like triads within a deeply interconnected web. So I sort of like to think of their core metaphor of nature as actually being a harmonic web of life. And the reason the web is such a great metaphor is like, imagine you're sort of going for a hike in the forest, and you see a spider's web. Well, you know that um, one little drop of water that just touches one part of that web will immediately cause it to reverberate, so all the other different parts of that web vibrate in relation to that one drop. And similarly, the Chinese saw that's the way that humans live in this universe, where every action we take has reverberations that can affect, often in nonlinear ways, all the other different elements of the universe around it. So that leads to a very different way of thinking about what humans should be doing in life. So if in the West with the dualistic idea, the idea was we should use our reason or we should develop our soul, reject the body because the ultimate goal is to become sort of reconnected with this eternal dimension up in the heavens, the Chinese saw the ultimate goal of human living to harmonize with that web. That if you could live life in a way to harmonize with it, you could live a skillful life they didn't reject technology, but they wanted to use technology to be able to let those harmonic flows work in more beneficial and effective ways rather than try to sort of destroy some element of what that web was about. Because in a sense, if you destroyed some part of that web, you basically undid part of yourself and you reduced your own quality of life and fragmented your own life. And of course, that's where I see so much that we can learn from that traditional Chinese thought when we try to look at our modern world. A lot of what modern scientific insights tell us is that actually this is what the world is like. systems thinkers in general like complexity science systems biology these are sort of sciences of connectivity that lead to these kind of chinese type of insights and so one simple example if we look at say the mind body split right from descartes and from the 17th century in europe we developed this idea that the mind was utterly separate somehow from the body But now evolutionary biologists and systems biologists show that actually the human brain is very similar to other animal brains and you can actually see how evolution developed over hundreds of millions of years from simple nervous systems to more complex mammalian brains and then the human brain with its it has a a real differentiation with symbolic thinking and this patterning instinct that i we talked about originally but they show that that's really just one extra level of complexity from this way of making sense of things that we share with all mammals so it shows that this mind-body split is just this made-up notion there is no actual distinction between the two and similarly um, when we look at all of nature we recognize that it is a complex system that we can't just engineer. We recognize now in modern systems science and earth science that every time we do an action on the earth, just like that Chinese notion of the harmonic web of life, it will have these complex nonlinear influences, some of which we can't even predict no matter how complex our models. And that's why we have to approach actually the whole earth system, the whole of Gaia, with a sense of humility and reverence. The great Buddhist philosopher of our time, Thich Nhat Hanh, talks about this concept, what he calls interbeing. He'll uh, do this great teaching where he'll lift up a piece of paper, just a blank piece of paper, and say, in this paper, you'll see the whole universe. You know, you'll see the sun because the trees could only grow because of the sun's photosynthesis. And you'll see the water. Basically, every part of the universe is there in this piece of paper. And we can also apply that to our whole global economic system. So if we think about that piece of paper, we also realize that, well, when we buy that piece of paper in a ream really cheap from a local store, that's also because it may be being farmed in some monoculture forest somewhere where natural growth has been sort of cut down and it may be milled creating the pollution in the earth and it may be so cheap because there's all virtual slave labor being used in the factory that produces it. And you know, it's shipped all the way around the world on some carbon emission system that is causing climate breakdown. And so you begin to realize that that piece of paper doesn't just hold the beauty of the world, it also holds some of the oppression and the destruction that we are causing in everything we do. And that's not to then say that we are bad, it's to say that we are all deeply interconnected. And then we need to take responsibility for that connection in terms of our own actions and realize that we can actually affect things in a more positive way. By our choices.
2: These days, what do you think uh, the metaphors that are embedded so deeply in our culture that we can't really see them are?
0: As I see it, what we've inherited from the scientific revolution that took place in Europe in the 17th century were some of the core underlying metaphors that we now just take for granted. The two crucial ones, one that sees nature as a machine and Along with that, during the beginning of the scientific revolution, people got so excited about this idea of nature as a machine that you could sort of break it apart and see how it worked. This idea grew of conquering nature. And during that time, it was a progressive and an exciting idea. Like we can conquer nature, make her do what we want her to do. There's a lot of weird patriarchal stuff going on around that too. Um, But the idea was that this would free up human beings and would be a great boon to humanity, which it was. And again, just like I don't want people to think that I sort of mythologize traditional China or anything like that, I also don't want to give the sense that I demonize our modern worldview. that scientific revolution has brought untold benefits to masses of humanity for centuries. And it's brought a greater understanding of and health. it's brought a greater understanding of all the elements of technology that give us security, that allow us to talk to each other you know, across thousands of miles, that allow so much that we now take for granted and that we can be grateful for. So there's a ton of wonderful things that came from that. Not just technological progress, but moral progress came from that scientific revolution set of thoughts of recognizing the sort of shared brotherhood or sisterhood of all of humanity and elements like that. Um, But what people sometimes get wrong is they conflate capitalism and that progress and they say that the capitalist system is what's responsible for that progress whereas really it's the greater understanding that the scientific revolution brought to us that gave the sense of progress has led to things like hygiene understanding and great changes like that around the world. But along with that because nature was now seen as a resource to exploit and along with this incredible sense of white supremacy that came from that christian belief in knowing the truth we had this unbelievable gruesome exploitation of other human beings that have occurred now for hundreds of years uh, through colonialism and imperialism and now continues from this kind of global north-south divide and this incredible inequalities of just unbelievable statistics like the wealthiest 26 billionaires in the world own as much wealth as half the entire world's population. Just amazing. And this incredible exploitation of natural resources. And again, even that word natural resources just shows the way that the language itself has taken these ideas within it. So living entities, as you said before, Jessica, have been turned, we think of them as machines, when they're actually factory-farmed animals, are carrying sensitive animals that go through excruciating pain and torture that we don't even have to think about. And as we develop our GDP growth, material growth, over the world, we're doing it at the destruction of the natural world. So much so that, in fact, just since 1970 alone, so in just the last 50 years, 60% of animal populations worldwide have been destroyed, have gone. So the majority of what was alive in the world just 50 years ago is gone now. In the oceans, it's even more extreme. The tropical forests, we're looking at the actual destruction of coral reefs entirely, most likely by the middle of this century based on global climate breakdown. Every direction we look, we see the same. Even insects, there's this concept of insectageddon where in some places more than 90% of the insects in an area have just vanished over the last few decades obviously because of the combination of development of concretizing the natural world and insecticides that are used climate breakdown the whole set of things interconnect to cause the destruction of so much as living and sentience around us
2: and it begins to feel like calling that progress is kind of a joke Scientific progress has given us lots of benefits, but the ugliness of the idea of living things as a machine becomes more and more apparent. In fact, it's so egregious and so ugly that we have to know that we're out of kilter. So unless we are just going to collapse, kill a lot of the species, put ourselves under risk of extinction ourselves... What do you think might happen to change that, to, to get us onto the right course? Because we know the fossil fuel lobbies are in there with governments. We know that growth is a terrible idea. But still, people think their lives are going to just be normal forever. Uh, most people, even I, you know, on an off day, I forget and think, oh, I'd love when can I get back to India? Uh, you know, how will it transform, do you think?
0: One thing we can really say for sure is that at the rate things are moving in every direction, the increase in technological innovation, the increase in the destruction, in inequalities, the rate of change is happening faster and faster. There's no question that something is unsustainable. Something transformative is going to happen. The question is what? Okay, And I I see three distinct possible scenarios. One is simple collapse and... Obviously, people who are tuned in to Extinction Rebellion and what that's about are only too aware that if we keep going at this rate, it's very easy to see how things will collapse. I mean, climate breakdown itself is enough to lead us to that. At the moment, we're heading towards a 3 degrees Celsius rise in temperature by the end of the century. Many scientists are showing increasingly it looks very likely that we'll be going even faster than that, unless there's drastic change. And that is simply not consistent with a continued civilization. The massive famines, uh, massive refugees caused by that will just lead things to uh, start to unravel. That's a terrible... Fear and a terrible risk. Then we need to ask why aren't some of the wealthy, powerful people in the world more concerned about what it is that we see so obviously? And there's another scenario that may develop, which is almost like a bifurcation of really the human species. Some people talk about this as a, as a fortress Earth scenario. I call it in my book Techno Split, and is this notion of, that this sort of affluent minority of the wealthy classes around the world basically cordon themselves off from the collapse that other people are experiencing. And we see that in the incredible inequalities taking place right now so that they siphon themselves off, they maintain their sort of internet-enhanced infrastructures, and they actually continue some form of separated civilization where most of the world continues this collapse we've just been describing. Now from a moral standpoint I view that as almost more perhaps more egregious than the overall collapse of civilization, because then it's a little bit like some people in a gilded lifeboat after the Titanic sinking and kick other survivors out into the ocean so they can have their place just for themselves. And I think that's something we need to be more aware of, because that's almost like the implicit direction that our society is actually moving into unless we do something about it. So I'm often trying to get people to be more aware of that scenario as one of the reasons why there seems to be this complete insouciance by so many in the elite classes about what's actually going on. But there's a third scenario that I personally get excited by and I spend uh, most of my time thinking about and writing about and exploring the possibilities of. And that's really this great transformation to a different set of values. Just like we saw from hunter-gatherers to agrarian values or from agrarian to scientific values, we can shift our culture to a different set of values. And the irony is that while that might seem so transformative and so impossible, it's really that is the only way in which we can actually see our actually a future consistent growth in the quality of life and humans being able to harmonize with the natural world into the indefinite future. So what this really means at the deepest level is a shift in the way in which we recognize our identity and our meaning and our values in the world from one of separation to one of connectivity that if we look at this worldview we're in right now, it's all about layers and layers of separation. With agriculture separating your cultured fields from the wild. Then with the ancient Greeks, separating the body from the soul and goodness from the natural world. And then with scientific revolution, separating individuals from each other, leading to this extractive capitalism that we're dealing with right now. But in fact, what traditional Chinese or what modern systems science tells us is actually we are all deeply interconnected. And when we actually apply that to ourselves, we that can shift everything in terms of our identity and our values and the way in which we organize the world to one where... As humans, we realize we're connected with all the different parts of ourselves, with our feelings and our thoughts, one integrated piece. We're connected with our community. We're connected with the whole human community around the world. And just as importantly, we're not just connected with the rest of life, we are life, we are nature and as part of that we recognize that when we're destroying parts of nature we're destroying ourselves and if we can build a society around that simple set of fundamental values we have the chance for actually a flourishing future
2: so how would that have you any idea of the mechanism are we is it is extinction rebellion all around the world going to make people rise up and demand this or Is there going to be like a reset, like Bretton Woods after the last war where everybody gets together and decides? Because what you would, I mean, the changes that you talked about at the beginning of the interview were ones that sort of naturally moved into each other. This would be the first time that we would consciously choose the values to live by, which is a different kind of world, isn't it?
0: That's right. This would be an intentional change. And it might seem easy to kind of dismiss this idea as sort of pie in the sky. How could such a tremendous change happen at the rate that it's needed, which is just basically at most a few decades, and even that might be too late. Um, But I think there are some places where we can get a sense of the potential for that change. And one is um, that even while we've been doing its incredible job of destroying the natural world and creating these inequalities around human beings, we've also, through things like the internet, as a major development, helped to grow a much greater sense of global consciousness, a sense of humanity almost as a superorganism. And what's happened with COVID, terrifying as it is, is just one more example of that, that we see how not just like the, the, a virus can spread so quickly through all of society around the world, but our response to to it all of a sudden as human beings this may be the first time in all of human history where the vast bulk of all of humans have been responding in a similar way to a a similar experience and sharing a whole set of feelings and responses and fears and uh, potentialities around something and there's a similar way in which that can happen as the far bigger wave of climate breakdown comes once COVID has sort of become history, that's the way we'll really be looking at. But there's this potentiality we now see how humans can come together in spite of some of the crazies that we see in in the United States and Brazil and other places. For the most part, there's a sense of shared humanity in responding to something. That's something that is doable. And as as society begins to unravel more, as the crises get to be bigger, the potential for that transformative change gets to be even bigger. But that where it's so important that the ideas are already there in place so as people look people like the younger generation people like greta thunberg and the people following her incredible um, example when they look for new ideas those ideas can be there and ready for the implementation
1: We've run out of excuses and we are running out of time. We're looking at mass starvation within 10 years. The reality is we're sleepwalking into a catastrophe. Change is coming, whether you like it or not. Extinction of rebellion. did What did you like about talking with him, Jessica?
2: I loved the way that he spoke about yin and yang and uh the difference between that and divided thinking because that was something that sort of bothered me and i'm not sure if i ever Mm. knew that before but uh, it's certainly i now completely understand it yeah
1: the difference between duality and polarity
2: yes Um, The other thing that really jumped out at me, I don't know if you responded to it, but what he called the techno split of there potentially being a sort of master race uh, (laughs) emerging of sort of one percenters who have hived themselves off um, from the rest of humanity and are living in a luxurious safe way while the rest of the world is going through massive crises uh due to climate change i find that really chilling
1: yeah and the fact that that's that that's almost like what we're on at the moment in a way in terms of the huge inequality that's kind of that nightmare taken to its furthest way in a way
2: And I think one of the reasons that we in the Global North are complacent is because we're not so profoundly affected by the climate and ecological crisis. It feels like it's Mm. down the road for us, whereas in the Global South, it's right now. And how how about you, Phil? What were the things that you came away with?
1: Well, we both chatted about it a little bit afterwards. That I really liked his generosity of spirit in terms of... um Saying that you know we don't have you don't have to throw everything out the window. It's not like science equals bad, and we should wish away all the kind of beautiful things that scientific integrity and exploration have brought us in terms of living more enriched lives. But also that we can try and serve a different story, perhaps. Yeah, and I, I and I also I just love any kind of invitation to dip into Taoism. I'm just, I'm absolutely there. In (laughs) fact, so much so that I've got my copy of the Tao Te Ching, a new English version by Ursula K. Le Guin here. Um, Oh, wow. Ursula Le Guin did it. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. It's sort of like she's taken loads of different translations of it and then done her own. Oh,
2: I want that book.
1: Beautifully poetic. (laughs) It's amazing. Jeremy Lent says about um, the way we speak matters, like everything is kind of reverberating through the web. And I really like this thing in the, in the Tao Te Ching, do big things while they're small. I feel like as a society, as a maybe a species, we haven't done that very well. Like We've just let the things build up and build up and build up. So now they are huge problems. Mm-hmm. But maybe we can still go back to this idea of, well, what can I do right now? What small step can I do what, right now, which is serving that world I want to live in, that idea of change, and just trusting that loads of people doing small steps will also help. Mm-hmm things to happen I can't, I'll, I'll find you the there's one study the hard while it's easy do big things while they're small the hardest jobs in the world start out easy the great affairs of the world start small
2: oh so my on. goodness
1: but it's cool i love it
2: yes very germane to our times wow well.
1: the tree you can't reach your arms around grew from a tidily ceiling uh, seedling i'll stop now but
2: Um, One thing that I feel a little bit regretful of is that Jeremy has a vision of what, what an ecological civilization might be like. And there just wasn't really room in this podcast to cover that. But it has given me an appetite to try to find an interesting thinker on that subject for a future episode.
1: Great. He's actually, in, in a way, almost got like a kind of vision of how it would practically work, in a way. Like yeah. How our money would be organised, how our housing would be...
2: Yes, and there would be crimes like ecocide uh, that people would mm. have to keep away from. And I think one of the other ideas is that corporations... You know, I think it's pretty well known that corporations can act like psychopaths. And, uh, you know, we can frame them as having... Um, some kind of responsibility towards humanity before they have to get profits for their shareholders, whereas at the moment they just have to get profits for their sh- shareholders in many jurisdictions.
1: Amazing, I really like this idea that there'll be some people whose like job in in this awakening that we need is is to kind of provide the big ideas, or I don't know, make the sandwiches, or whatever and everyone's got their own part to play yes um, but we all have a role so cool like some people are more about ideas some people are more like no i actually know how to create the legal framework required for a new law or like some people can just know how batteries work it's so cool
2: (laughs) (laughs) yes and can grow things i'm i've got to learn to grow things Thank you for listening to the Extinction Rebellion podcast. I've been co-presenting with Phil Smith and I'm Jessica Townsend.
1: See you in two weeks. Thanks for listening.